here's like just real side note. Um, I love the children in here. Like I love that they're in here, that they get to participate in the worship and uh, and being here for the songs and be here for the Apostles' Creed. In fact, what's crazy is that they all have the Apostles' Creed probably memorized now because we just say it every week where you and I are still like, um, if I'm not looking at it, I can't say it. Uh, but we also know that we're growing in size, and so we're wrestling with what does that look like. Um, but we really want to continue to grow in our size, but with the children in here. So we are trying to do, just as you know, as we continue to, however God blesses us in this way, we want the children to be a part of our service as much as possible, which is then also why on the last Sundays of the month, we do what we just call Family Sunday, and there is no junior church downstairs. All those children stay up so that they get to hear the sermon. They get to be a part of the service just from beginning to end. Um, So you can also be praying for that also as we just have wisdom on how do we navigate and how do we have, because you saw like 50 kids go downstairs. Um, And so those are all seats that we also need as we continue to just grow in here. So anyways, side note, Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We started this two weeks ago. And in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the author exalts the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In fact, the first four verses of Hebrews may be some of the most beautiful and most glorious and majestic verses in all of Scripture regarding who Jesus Christ is. And so if you're ever just kind of, why is it that we make such a big deal out of Jesus? Why is it that we just say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and every sermon is about Jesus, everything we do is about Jesus, every Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? Except when it's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so uh, you come to these first four verses, and we see that Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. We see that he's the creator and sustainer of all creation. He's the heir of everything, which means he owns everything. We read that by his death and his resurrection, he's the one who made purification for our sins, and he now sits at the right hand of God as our king priest. He is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Like everything in the Old Testament is just pointing to Jesus. And so now as we begin to move into chapter 2, we're getting to the heart of the book. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that the church that is being written to is struggling with their faith. They're debating about leaving Christianity. And the reason is, is because persecution has increased, it's grown, and they're all being affected by it. They've been arrested. Their property has been taken from them. They've been publicly shamed. And they look at the horizon, and they see it's just going to continue to increase. And so they're beginning to wrestle and go, wait a minute. Do we really believe this thing called Christianity? Or did we, did we make a mistake, and should we go back to Judaism? Because Judaism was legal. They weren't being persecuted. So they're, they're wrestling with their faith. And so... So the author is going to be encouraging them all throughout this letter, pleading with them, keep the faith, stay the faith. And this is something that that we need because every one of us at some point will wrestle with our faith. And do we really believe this? Are we going to continue? Are we going to persevere? Are we going to continue to say Jesus is king? And you might say, well, are we? 
when you get to Revelation, uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there's seven churches there, right? Five of them are already experiencing spiritual drift, meaning they're drifting from Jesus. They're questioning things. They're compromising in their faith. And so we see that this is a reality that affects churches and affects believers. In fact, I just, I just want to encourage you just to think through, um, where are you at in your faith? Have you had those seasons, those times where you've questioned your faith? Maybe you're in that period of time right now. Maybe you've wrestled. Am I really a belief? Am I going to continue to believe this? And so what we're going to do today is see what is the solution? What does the author call us to do? And so he's going to do a couple things. He's going to show us the consequence if we were to leave the faith. And then he's going to also show how we resist and overcome this temptation to drift from our faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and stand. Uh, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, one thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so because we believe this Word comes from God. It's different from every other book. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's given for, to you and to I as the revelation of God that we would be corrected, equipped, and trained in righteousness that we would live for God. And so we stand as a means of honoring God and encouraging one another. Here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Father, Father, we're coming to your word today, and you promise that when your word goes forth, you will accomplish all that you purpose. And so that's our prayer right now, is that in your word, you accomplish your purposes for us today. I pray that we'd be encouraged in our faith. I pray we'd be convicted where there is unbelief. I pray that we'd be spurred on. And I pray that we would desire to come alongside one another, truly seeing that we are a body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, called to look out for one another, to spur one another on, to encourage each other in the faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us just eyes to see your truth today, that we would see the beauty and the majesty of your gospel, and that because of that, We'd grow in our love and our faith, and we would do what, what Hebrews says in, in chapter 12, that we'd run the race that you had given us, that we'd look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So God, be with us now and strengthen us. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. All right, so today, in this passage, we come to the first of five warning passages in Hebrews. And uh, I look forward to going through these. These are fun passages. These are tough passages. Um, each of these passages are addressed to the church. 
And the purpose of them is redemptive. I want you to think. Think of these warning passages like, um, like a highway warning sign. When you're going down, it says, slow down, big curves ahead. And so it's warning you that if you don't slow down, based upon your trajectory, there would be danger ahead. Or think of it like a parent who warns their kids about not running with scissors or running into the street where, where there are cars. They haven't done it yet, maybe, or they haven't you know, been injured yet, but you tell them, and your warning is the very means in which you are going to correct and keep them safe and alive. So that's what the author is doing here. He's giving them a warning in order to spare them judgment and punishment. And so what is the church being warned about? Well, we've watched, the warning is watch out for spiritual drift. If you look at verse 2, the author says we much we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So we ought to ask, well, what did they hear? Well, in verse 3, we're told that Jesus, the Lord, has come and spoken. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, or verses 1 and 2, remember, it starts out with, uh, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now in these Last days, he's spoken to us by who? Through his son. So the son has come, and he's spoken, he's given the gospel. We read that in chapter 1, we read that in chapter 2. The author is talking about the message of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, we need to pay close attention to what we have heard, the gospel, lest we drift away from it. So the danger is that they're drifting from their understanding and their belief in the gospel. So what does he mean by drift? Well, the word drift could refer to what happens when a boat without an anchor is um, you know, near the shoreline. Where does the boat always tend to go? Towards the rocks, right? It always moves towards the rocks. In fact, two years ago, my family and I were in Branson, Missouri. We do a big family reunion every year, and every other year we go to Branson. And so we're, we're in the lake. It's, it's Lake Branson, right? Is that the name of the lake? I can't remember. What's the name of the lake? There's a lake. It's big. And so we rented a boat. I could have Googled this yesterday. I have no clue what this lake is. So we, we go out in this lake, and I got the family and I. We get a boat, uh, and we're, we have a tube, and we're pulling the kids, and we're just having a blast. And the kids say, hey, let's go swim. So we pull over into one of those coves, and there is no anchor in the boat. So what do you do? You just jump out and swim anyway. And then after about 15 or so minutes of swimming, we're like, hmm, the boat's moving. So, you know, we swim back over to the boat, get in the boat, move it back to the center of the cove. We swim again. And then what happens? 15 or so minutes later, it's just moving over to, uh, to the rocks, to the shore. And the thing is, if you were to look at the boat, you don't really see it moving. It just kind of looks like it's staying there, and then 15 minutes later, you're like, oh, it's right next to the rocks. We need to go and move it again. Movement, spiritual drift, is almost imperceptible at first. It just begins to happen slowly, and then all of a sudden, it's there, and you're going, wow, we're in danger right now, and so that's what the author is doing. He's saying, look, if you continue to go on this trajectory, you're going to shipwreck your faith, and you don't see it right now. But that's exactly what's happening. 
And so he's warning them here. And so what is spiritual drift? So I want to I just give four ways that spiritual drift can happen. And as I walk through these, and there's probably more ways, I just want you to wrestle. Am I experiencing this? Am I in this? I want you to first just think about yourself. Think about how this message applies to you. Not your neighbor, not your wife, not your kids, not everyone else that you can think about. First, just think, how does this apply to me? And then, after you've wrestled with that, then I want you to think, do I know of anyone else struggling with with this right here? And so the first one is familiarity. Spiritual drift can happen because it's familiarity. Uh, Some of you have been a Christian for years. You are familiar with the Bible, with many of the stories and teachings of the Bible. Um, You know what happens in church every week. In fact, you come, your car, you get in on Sunday morning, it just kind of makes its way here. You don't even have to like really steer it. It just kind of gets here. In fact, you then just kind of pull in the parking lot and you're like, was I actually driving? Have you ever done that? You get somewhere and you're like, huh, did I space out for some of that time? Um, so you might be in that where church has just become a routine. Reading the Bible is just this routine. It's just kind of like checking a box And no longer, when you're in the Bible, when you're hearing the gospel, when you're thinking about Christ, is there a joy? Is there an excitement? But it feels kind of more like your Saturday chores. It's just this thing that we do, and we check the box, and then we're done with it, and we move on. And if you were to look at yourself right now, you might say, man, my commitment has begun to wane. No longer Am I trusting in Christ in every way? Really, church has just become this thing that I do and this box that I check. Yes, Christian. I just, I just encourage you, are you there? Have you been there? Do you know of someone that's like that? Or maybe busyness. Perhaps you've gotten a new job, maybe a new baby. Moved into a new house. Or maybe COVID has thrown your life upside down. And you're still just trying to figure out how does everything align? How does this all work together? And so you figure, you feel like you just wake up early. You go to bed late. You're just kind of tired all the time. Your week is busy. You're not really having time for God's word. You get to the weekend. And Saturday you got this list of things. And then comes Sunday. Finally, you can sleep in. Finally, Sunday's the day. You can just kind of do what you want to do. And so if you make it church, great. But if you don't, that's okay, too, because you deserve a break. You deserve just some time off. And so you're, But when you start looking at your, your gathering with the church, your reading of God's Word, you just notice it's all getting more and more sporadic, and it's getting less and less. It's becoming more of a convenience factor. And really what you notice is just not really ever convenient to do it. So I encourage you to think through if that's where you're at. Or maybe success. That's number three. I know of many, many, many people that have gotten a new job as they've, um, as they've made more money. That that's opened up new opportunities for them. They're now distracted by more and more things that they can afford or things that they have, things that they can do. And so no longer do they actually have time for God. Now, let me, let me just give you a side note on this one. This is one that can shipwreck a church pretty easy. And I mean like the way we function. 
Um, as a church, you know, we're, we're constantly wrestling with, are we being faithful? Are we accomplishing the mission? Are we making disciples? And so if we're not careful, we can answer that by saying things like, well, offerings up. That's good. Well, we have more people on the Sunday morning. Well, we have more people in junior church right now. Well, you know, everyone seems to be a part of these things. These ministries are growing, so let's just make sure we keep doing these kinds of things that keep bringing in these people so we keep growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what we're slowly doing is moving our focus from the gospel and what is the thing that we're meant to focus on, and we're now focusing on programs. We're focusing on entertainment. We're focusing on what draws people. Versus what builds us and what encourages us and what grows us in the faith. Not that all those things would be wrong or bad necessarily. But as a church, that's a temptation that we can fall into. And so I do ask that you be praying for for me, for the elders, for just us as leaders. That we would have wisdom. And that God would just continue to give us grace. That we would not begin to look at the wrong things when we begin to wrestle with, are we being faithful? Because if you remember, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, what is it? Uh, Paul preached, or Paul planted, Apollos watered, something like that. Some, some cultivation. But God gives growth, right? So we, we work, but, but we don't build the church, right? Like I, we can't make more people come, or, well, we could probably get more people here. But we can't grow anyone in the faith. That's what God does. And so we just want to make sure that those are the things that we're focusing on, is that God is the one who gives growth. So I encourage you to be praying for us, but also just be wrestling with just your own life. Has things changed in your life that have presented more opportunities, maybe new opportunities, and those things are beginning to drift you from the gospel? Next is suffering. Suffering and trials And that seems to be what's happening primarily here with this church in Hebrews. You see, trials can wear on us and slowly make us callous towards the gospel. In fact, fact, you might notice this. uh, When you become worn out by trials, you can become bitter. You can become angry. You can become discontent. You can say things like, I don't know how life got like this, but that's not how I planned it. Then you can run for the door or maybe the back of the room. I love you, Raymond. (laughs) But trials can harden us towards the gospel. And they can make us go, do we really believe this? And And then here's the thing. As the trial intensifies, we begin to read scripture through the lens of culture, through the lens of the trial, through the lens of suffering, which is what the church here in Hebrews is doing. They're going, wait a minute. If Jesus is really just an angel, and he's not more than an angel, then we can go back to Judaism. Because if God used angels, that's the whole point of chapter 1 where he spoke about all these angels, is the idea is, The author is saying Jesus is greater than angels, which is why the covenant he brings is greater. But if Jesus wasn't greater than angels, then it's okay to stay in the Old Testament. Then we don't need to go to Christianity, and thus 
We don't need to be persecuted. So what the church is beginning to do is they're wrestling with their suffering and their trials, and they're beginning to read Scripture through the lens of their pain, through the lens of their suffering, and they're looking at how can we make this go away? That's what trials and suffering will begin to do. So hear this. Four things. If you are wrestling right now with anger, frustration, discontentment, if, um, if you're not involved in the church, if you look and see that you're withdrawing from church, if you're withdrawing from Scripture, or you're beginning to look at Scripture more like suggestions rather than the commands of God, you are moving towards spiritual drift. Just want to bring that up. If you're wrestling with anger, frustration, discontentment, if you're pulling out of your gathering with the church, if you're pulling out of your reading in God's word, and if you're looking at God's word more like suggestions, like we can probably like change this. It's, it's, not, it's not really the commands of God. It's more suggestions. You're moving in spiritual drift. And so the author is saying, watch out, danger ahead. That's what he's saying. Sharp turn. If you don't slow down, if you don't adjust course, you're going to wreck. So just, just pause then, because what we're supposed to do is when we come to something like this in Scripture, rather than just read right over it and not think about it, or just go, yeah, that's terrible for other people, we're supposed to go, is this true for me? Am I drifting? Have I gotten too busy for God? Am I so familiar with the gospel that I'm no longer in awe of my salvation? Do I feel worn out by trials? Am I, being, am I being distracted by success and the things that money or, or life is, being, is giving me at this moment? Has Christianity become more of a checkbox that I'm just checking, but it's not really something I'm committed to? It's not really a belief that is dictating and guiding everything that I do? So I just want you to wrestle with that. I want you to just wrestle, are you there? And then I just want you to wrestle, do I know someone that's there? Do I know someone that, man, the trajectory that they're on, they might not see this, but they're going towards shipwreck right here. I just want you to wrestle with that. Because he's now going to give us the solution. He wants us to know what we need to do. So we go back to verse 1. And here we have, we must Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So the solution to spiritual drift is thinking more closely, more deeply about what we have heard. And remember, what we have heard is the words of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the solution is to think more about the gospel. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment. There are many atheists that will say, and I, in fact, we'll just generalize it all atheists. We'll just generalize it. All atheists will accuse Christians of being anti-intellectual. Have you heard something like that at some point? Um, and to some degree, I think we as Christians bring this upon ourselves because we will say things like, just have faith. And like, we might know what that means, but we, the way we say it, it just sounds like we believe in, we, faith is blind believing. Or we might not actually know what it means to just have faith, and it is just blind believing. And so sometimes I think we bring those accusations against ourselves, but let me just say this, Christianity is anything but anti-intellectual. 
And for anyone to say that will prove their own foolishness. I mean, we could just walk through scriptures. In fact, maybe it would be a fun Sunday. Just walk through scriptures on all the things it tells us to think deeply about. I mean, in Isaiah 1.18, Isaiah the prophet says, come, let us reason together. So he's looking at the Israel and says, let's think deeply about this. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3, and says, let, instructs us to call out for insight and raise our voice for understanding. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, he, Paul tells Timothy, look, look, Timothy, you need to think deeply about the things that I have told you about. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you can look at the sky and you can tell what the weather's going to be like, but you're unable to decipher, to discern the times that you're living in. He's like, you can look up at the sky. You know if it's about to rain. You know if it's going to be a sunny day. But you're unable to look at scriptures and understand when and where you live right now. Or oftentimes, the authors will make these logic-based arguments like lesser to greater. Jesus will do this like in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, talking about anxiety in the kingdom of God, he will say, you have heard that God will take care of the birds and the flowers, and he clothes them. And then he says, if you, being much greater than flowers and birds, how much more will he take care of you? Do you see the lesser to greater? It's a logic-based argument. He's saying, if God cares for these menial things, like flowers and birds, which will pass away, and yet you're made in the image of God, how much more will he care for you? And so that is what we're going to see also the author will be doing here is making this argument from a lesser to greater as we move through here. So I just want to encourage you. I mean, we could go on and on, and this is kind of a little rabbit trail, but I think it's a worthy rabbit trail. The Christian is anything but anti-intellectual. And so here the author is saying the solution to drift is not just have faith, as if there's no content or substance to our faith. But he's saying, listen. We're going to have faith, and we need to think deeply about what we believe in. So he's now going to just bring us in and say, what is it that we think deeply about? So he's going to give us three things that we need to think about. Number one, he says, think about what you've been saved from. If you remember, chapter one, the author spends a great deal of time talking about that Jesus is greater than angels. And now here in chapter two, we understand why he did this. You see, if you go back to chapter 2, he says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. His point is, the old covenant was brought and instituted by angels. And you'll read that. If you go to like Galatians 3, it's either verse 17 or 19, Acts chapter 7, here in Hebrews 2, go to Deuteronomy. It'll talk about that God used angels as a means of bringing about the old covenant, the law. And so his point is, if every punishment under the old covenant that was brought by angels, if every disobedience was punished, how much more will there be a punishment for those who forsake the new covenant established by Jesus, who's the Son of God, the one he's described in, chapters, in chapter 1? In fact, just to do a little refresher, I'm sure many of you can remember some of the consequences, some of the punishments that were, were given out for breaking of the old covenant. 
Do you remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? Nobody names their kids Nadab and Abihu. They were struck down by God because they made an improper sacrifice. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because he disobeyed God and struck the rock rather than spoke to the rock. Achan, remember him in the story of Joshua? Joshua 6 or 7, they, they destroy the walls of Jericho. God says, don't take any of the goods. Achan says, well, they look pretty good. And so he takes stuff, he buries it under his tent. He's stoned with his whole family and all of his animals. We go to Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 28 just gives a list of curses for those who break God's word. In fact, this is what Deuteronomy 28 verse 45 says. He says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So here's the point. If there were great consequences for breaking the old covenant, and now we understand the old covenant was a shadow pointing to the much greater reality of Jesus Christ, how much greater the punishment for those who forsake the gospel and turn from Jesus. You see what he's making here? Jesus used this reasoning. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, and you, Capernaum, which is a city, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why is Sodom, why is there going to be more tolerance for Sodom than for Capernaum? What's the difference? Capernaum has Jesus, the reality. Sodom had the shadows. The truth was there, but it was dimly lit. And they were judged for their disobedience to God. But now, Jesus Christ himself has come to Capernaum, has shown miracles and signs, has spoken to them. He, they've rejected him. So he says, it's more tolerable for them than for you. Because you have seen the greater reality. We do this with our kids, right? The older they get, the more they know, the greater the consequence, Right? The more severe that punishment. I mean, when they're like two and they disobey, you're like, ah, oh, they're two. And you give kind of grace and you're working with that. But when they're seven and they defy you, you're like, hmm, you know that that's wrong. There's a greater consequence at that moment. That's what the author is bringing here. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says that for those who forsake him, those who reject him, they will suffer and experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, years ago, there used to be what we call fire and brimstone preaching. Everyone been to a church that, that used to do that? Yeah? Here, here's the thing. Many of us would probably say something like, I'm sure glad we don't have that anymore. Or, it's good that we've moved past that or matured past that. But I don't think that's necessarily good. I think we need fire and brimstone preaching at times. I don't think it should be all that we have. But here in Hebrews, we're going to have five warning passages where he's going to bring some fire to the church and say, look, there's a danger if you don't repent and change course. Listen, in, in chapter 1, the author has made it abundantly clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the heir, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. 
He's the, the, uh, the king priest, the one who's made purification for sins. He's the one who sits right now at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says, if you reject this king, this son, if you want to think he's just an angel, if you want to try to go back to Judaism, do not think that you will be spared the fiery torment of your souls. In fact, Revelation Revelation uh, 20, 21, it describes hell as a lake of fire. And what the author wants us to know is that it is that that lake of fire for all who turn from the gospel, who forsake Jesus Christ, that fire will lick the skin off your body for all of eternity, killing you over and over and over and over again, and yet you will never be done. That's what he wants us to know. We need that understanding. So he's saying, think deeply about this. If there was punishment in the Old Testament, how much more if we were to forsake it now? Listen, we all understand the severity of judgment is always based upon the authority offended, right? This is why there's more punishment for hitting a cop than your brother, right? But it's okay to hit your brother. No, just kidding. It's not okay to hit your brother. All the parents are like, ah. Uh, and it's why it's more offensive to hit the president than the cop. The party offended will determine the level of consequence. And so if we understand that principle, how much more when we offend the Son of God? That's what he's wanting us to see. That's why the author will rhetorically ask, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. And so his point here, his point is that if we are experiencing a spiritual slumber right now, that our heart would be pricked, that he would stir us right now. And he would say, wake up. If you continue down this path, if you don't change trajectory, you're in for danger. And I just want to encourage you, are you there? I just want to you, where are you at right now? This is being written to a church. So we as a church need to hear this message. And so we just need to wrestle, are we there? Are we experiencing this? Have we been turning? Have we been drifting? Think greatly about the judgment that's there. And now, to move to maybe a little more joyful note, he's now going to tell us, Think about the greatness of our salvation. So first, it's think about the judgment. Now it's think about the greatness of your salvation. That's what we read in verse 2. He says, or verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you realize your salvation is great? You know that? I mean, just think about it. Our salvation is nothing less than the Son of God becoming flesh, entering into this world, the creation that he made, living, preaching the gospel, being arrested, where he will then be put on a cross for your sake and my sake, that by his death, he would pay the punishment that you and I deserve, and he would absorb God's wrath. That's that big word we use, propitiation. He would absorb God's wrath so that you and I, when we believe in him, we would be forgiven, justified, declared righteous, made clean. We'd be adopted into the family of God. We'd be sanctified, which means we are holy. And of course, until Jesus comes back, we know that we are being made holy. 
And we're promised that one day we will be glorified, which means we will look and, and be like God. Not that we will be equal in any way, but we will share in his glory. And Revelation chapter 3 says we will sit on his throne with him, ruling the nations. And Romans 8, 16, 17 says that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, meaning the guy who owns everything. Remember that, chapter 1, verse 2? He's the heir of everything. We are co-heirs with him. So it's like, this is your salvation. Isn't that not amazing and great? So he says, think deeply about this. What have you believed in? What have you been saved, not just from, but what have you been saved to? I get it. Familiarity breeds complacency. I've been there where Sunday mornings become the check the box. Maybe you're here today because you checked the box. You're like, well, this is what I got to do. It's Sunday. The kids, kids are taken downstairs for an hour. You know, we get a break. Um, whatever it is. Maybe that's what Bible reading has become. Let's check the box. But I just want to encourage you what author is wanting us to see is the beauty and the joy of the gospel. And if as we talk about the gospel, you're more concerned at this moment about what your lunch plans are going to be or your vacation or the hobby or the, the for me, I'll be ripping up floors later in, um, today. Um, if, if I'm more concerned about demoing out my floors, then I'm experiencing some spiritual drift. And the thing is, I need to repent. And so I just encourage you, if you're right now, we talk about the gospel and you're like, man, what is for lunch? Like, like just take that as a clue. That there's something that's distracting you from the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of the gospel. And so this is what we need. We need to prayerfully every day just come to Jesus and say, give me the eyes to see the beauty of your word. Help me to remember and to see the beauty of your gospel that has saved me. This is, what, this is why we, we do the Apostles' Creed every week. The Apostles' Creed is just a summary of the gospel. And when we get to Catholic Church, I know you all, you're all like, the, you know, you get silent on Catholic because you're like, can we say that? Um, it just means universal body. We're talking about the body of Christ. So we do that every week because your kids memorized it now. I don't even know how they do that. I'm still having to look at it at times going, wait, what's that next word? Oh, yeah. But they memorize it just by seeing it. So we do that as a means of reminding ourselves, this is what we believe. We take communion every week. You know what some people will say? Shouldn't really take communion every week, you know, because then, then it'll become too familiar. Really? Every week we get to not only hear the gospel through the preaching, but then we get to hold, touch, taste, and see the gospel through communion. We need that. God has given us all these senses, not only that we would experience the world, but that we would see and experience the beauty and the wonder of the gospel on a regular basis. That's why we do that. We could exhaust the dictionary if we tried to pull all the superlatives out of it to explain the gospel. It is too great and too wonderful and too marvelous and the crazy thing is, is because of the, the indwelling sin within me and with you, sometimes I just think there's something sweeter than it. And I just encourage you, if that's where you're at, then Jesus right now is just saying, repent. Repent of that. 
And here's the thing. You know when you go to like a public pool or a beach, there's a lifeguard. And the reason is the lifeguard's making sure everyone stays alive. He's making sure everyone comes back out of the water, right? Pretty helpful thing. That's what we're supposed to do with us. We're all to operate like lifeguards for the body of Christ. Looking at each other, encouraging each other, building each other up. And when we see, hey, this guy hasn't been at church for a while. Maybe he's drifting. Or, hey, he got a new job. Maybe life got busy. We know spiritual drift can occur because of that. Or, hey, they had a new baby. Things can happen. Or, hey, he's going through a trial, a pain, a suffering. What should we do? Do we sit back and we just go, well, I hope he makes it. No, we know spiritual drift is a reality, right? So what do we do? We engage. We call. We make meals. We encourage. We stop by. We encourage one another. And, and as we go through the book of Hebrews, this is, this is what I've seen probably more than anything in the book of Hebrews. Running the race is not about you getting to the finish line by yourself. It's about us getting there together. It's about locking arms with other believers, you building them up and them building you up. That's what we're going to see as we go through. That's why, that's one thing, we talk about table groups quite a bit here, and we're going to be doing so even more in the coming weeks. If you're not part of a table group, it's really just our form of small groups. We just have a a big thing about tables. Um, So we just call them table groups. If you're not a part of a table group, and that's just a, a group of people who meet together to pray, to encourage, to know each other, to serve each other, to build each other. If you're not a part of it, we want you a part of that. Not because we're like, hey, table groups are a great way to build up numbers. Because what we see in God's word is that we need accountability. We need community. We need encouragement. I need people that have a close set of eyes on my life that can say, hey, man, what's going on? Because you all don't know me. Only some of you do. Only some of you know the things going on in my life. And I only know some of the things going on in your life. But we need to be with a group of people where we're able to commit to. And they're committed to us for the purpose that we don't experience spiritual drift. So again, if you're not part of the table group, come see me. I want to help you be a part of that. Last, point number three. Third thing we're supposed to think about. Think about the validity of the gospel. Look at verses three and four. This is really cool. He says, halfway through verse 3, it was declared, meaning the gospel was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard, those were the apostles. So have you, have you ever wondered, did Paul write the book of Hebrews? Have you ever heard that? No, he didn't write the book of Hebrews because it says it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested, it was spoken to us by those who heard. Who are those who heard? The apostles. Those who were firsthand. Paul always says he received the gospel firsthand by Jesus Christ. Go read Galatians chapter 1. So we know it's not Paul. I have no clue who it is. I just know it's not Paul. Um, That's really a side note. There you go. Just a little something to fill your whatever with. Um, But there's three things that he wants us to see here. He says, first, the gospel is declared by Jesus, the Son of God. He came, he preached, he died, and he rose again. And then there's these guys called the apostles who walked with him. They saw him rise. And don't forget, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told more than 500 other people saw Jesus rise. So this church knows people who firsthand saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, 
after the resurrection. And so he says, we know the gospel from Jesus. We know the gospel from those who saw him, who walked with him. And then he says, on top of that, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given miracles and healings, and he's done these wonders amongst us, and he gives us these gifts of the Spirit. He's literally saying, don't you guys remember? We saw Jim healed. We saw Bob. He was lame, but now he walks. I'm just making up names, you know. We saw these people who had disease, and they were healed. We saw people speak in tongues. We saw people gifted by the Spirit be used for the purpose of the body in incredible ways. We've seen all these wonders. And he says, if Jesus isn't who he is, how do you explain that? That's his point. Think about our salvation. Think about the judgment. Think about the great salvation. And think about... All these affirmations of the gospel, Jesus, the apostles, all these firsthand witnesses, and we have these miracles and wonders and tongues and all these gifts. How do we explain that if Jesus isn't Jesus, the true Son of God? We're called to think. And so we're getting ready to take communion. And so what I want you to do, for us to do, is just take a moment and think. So when the team comes up here, I just want you to think about your salvation. I want you to think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross so you could be saved, so that you could be justified, so you could be adopted into his family. I want you to think that now, because of Jesus, you've been declared righteous. You have eternal life in you. The Spirit of God dwells within you. And you are promised that on that day that he returns, you will be with him. Or the moment you close your eyes here, you will open them with him in eternity. And then, as you think about just the greatness of your salvation, I just want you to wrestle with, am I living in light of what I know? Am I doing what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Am I being a living sacrifice? Am I doing what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Am I being salt and light? Am I living for the truth of the gospel? Do I believe Jesus is everything? Or or have I begun to drift? And if you begin to drift, I just encourage you to repent. And here's the other thing I want you to do. I want you to think about other people, whether it's here in this church, or just people that you know. And I just want you to think, who do I know that's probably drifting right now? Because I, I guarantee you, you know someone, I know someone. Like, that's not, it's not do you, it's who do you know that's drifting right now? And I, there's, there's, there's space on the bottom of your, your worship guide. I want to encourage you, write their names down. And I want to encourage you, later today, call them, write them. In fact, don't write them, just call them. Words are so much better in verbal form than just written, so call them. And then if they don't answer, whatever, then write them. But make an effort to encourage them, to come alongside. And remember, they might not be wherever you're at today, but meet them where they're at. Meet them in their sorrow, in their pain, whatever it is. Begin praying for them. Begin walking with them. Begin encouraging them. This is what we we have to do this as a body. If we're going to be a body that loves one another, that displays the gospel of Christ, it's only going to be as we are examining when they're encouraging one another. I need you all to do that with me. 
We need to do that with every single one of us. And so I really just want to encourage you. Who do you know in the church that just could use a word of encouragement? Who do you know outside the church that could use a word of encouragement? You just know that they're on a course there's been road signs, but for some reason, they're just barreling past those road signs, and they're coming to those sharp curves, and if they don't change course, you know a shipwreck is going to happen, and those don't even match up, a shipwreck and a car crash, whatever. But just think through spiritual drift. So uh, I'm going to pray, and I just want you to think how incredible it is that our God, our Father, our Savior knows that we will experience spiritual drift. So it gives us a text like this to prick our hearts, to awaken us from a spiritual slumber, to remind us to look at one another. So let's pray. Father, oh, Father, we praise you. And Lord, Lord, we know that there are people in, in this room right now that are experiencing, experiencing just spiritual drift for whatever reason. I pray that just your word would just awaken them today. They'd be reminded of your greatness. They'd be reminded of just the futility of the path that they've been on. And Lord, I pray that you would also just give us eyes for other people, whether it's in the church or outside the church, that we just know are drifting. Lord, may we go after them. May we love on them. May we encourage them. May we not just think someone else is going to do it, but may we realize that your spirit is in us, that we would be used as your instrument, as your vessel of mercy for the purpose of sharing the good news with them. So Lord, I pray, make us bold. And may we go make phone calls this afternoon. May we go visit people. May we go spur others on in the faith that together we'd run the race and we'd be excited about the day you return. Lord, I thank you about your I thank you for your gospel. Lord, may we never fail to think about your gospel, to think about what we have been saved from, to think about who we've been saved to, and all the amazing ways that you have proved and shown the truth of your gospel in your word. Father, we love you. May we display the love that you have for us and that we have for one another today as we go forth. In your name, Jesus, amen.